We've been uh, started, a couple weeks ago, we started a series on hope. And there's a theme verse that uh, we've been using, and, and I want to put that on the screen. And what I'd like to do is just say this in unison. So if you would join me um, out loud and repeat this, and my hope is that some of you might actually memorize it. It really is a, a powerful verse. So would you just join me as we say this out loud? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. A, a great, um, great verse. But today we begin looking at another character. And up front, I just remind you, when we look at these characters, we fly pretty high in terms of the details and such. Uh, so I would encourage you maybe at some point to dig your Bibles out and read the rest of the story. But turn with me to Genesis 37 here this morning. And while I put the verses on the screen, there's a tension that I feel up here in that I like the verses so you can hear them or see them as well, but I also want you digging in your Bibles or if you have an electronic Bible, I'd encourage you, be a highlighter, be an underliner, uh, highlight those in your electronic versions so you can, as you read them coming back, it might jolt you back to some things as well. So encourage you to do that. But we want to look at a man named Joseph this morning. And Joseph is such a powerful story of an example of a man who walked with God. And when you think back, I think back to Sunday school. When I was real young, Joseph was told over and over again. And there are so many really profound lessons that come out of the picture of this man's life. You think, I think one of the early ones was the issue of temptation, and how it applies to our life. And, and I've seen this passage used for, for leadership principles and, and looking at family dysfunction and broken families. There's numerous ways you can look at this character of Joseph. But today we want to connect Joseph and his story with this word hope. And so what I'd like to do to begin with is, again, we're flying high. I just want to give you some snapshots of the life of Joseph and just a reminder of some of the things that he had to wrestle with, he had to struggle with. So if you take notes, uh, number one, I said it this way. He came from a dysfunctional family. If you read that story really close, you'll see that there was some dysfunction going on. There was baggage. His father was Jacob. The grandfather was Isaac. And matter of fact, if you even look at his father for Jacob, uh, Jacob was a bit of a schemer. He was a manipulator. And, and matter of fact, when Jacob was young, if you remember, he stole the birthright from his uh, twin brother Esau, who was hungry. But one of the pieces in this generational baggage sometime that gets passed down on this particular one is that parents at times tend to play favorites. And this is true in this story. Look at Genesis 37 verse 3. Now Israel, which is Jacob there, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But let me show you going back some of the generational history to that piece. In Genesis 25, look at this. This is talking about his father. 
Jacob. And when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter and a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in the tents, and Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. He was a hunter, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Do you catch what was going on here? And number two, for your notes, I said it this way for a snapshot. Because of this, Joseph was hated by his brothers. Look at verse 4 in chapter 37. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. That It's a reminder. Even in the parenting realm, when love is a type of commodity, and you give more love to one child and less love to another, and how it can distort and cause conflict in a family. And the result of that, another snapshot, number three, Joseph was disowned by his brothers and even physically abused. Let me read you some of the verses around that in verse 17. So his dad sends him out to his brothers, and Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan, and they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. So you just go, okay, here's a bunch of brothers. They literally wanted to kill him. But a couple of them weren't so thrilled about that. And look at how in verse 27, it, they, they see this caravan coming and pick it up in verse 27. Come, this is Judah, by the way, talking. Let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listen to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by and they drew up Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. I don't know if this was in your family. I had a brother that I wish I could probably sold. Okay. <laughs> but understand that the tension, this was angry brothers. It was real. It wasn't just fun stuff. They literally sold him. And number four, this snapshot in his life, Joseph finds himself in Egypt as a slave a young man, he's missing, he's been taken away from the family. Now, now, when you stop and you go, what was going through Joseph's mind? All my brothers hate me? That's not a very fun place to be. They want me dead. All of a sudden you're in Egypt and now you're a slave? But there's an interesting point. Joseph was, I, I think, a really a natural leader. And he had the character to go with it. And he gets sold in, and a man takes him and his name is Potiphar. And all of a sudden, because of who Joseph is, he gets raised up and he gives, gets, he's not treated like a slave anymore. But then there's another piece of history because trouble doesn't really leave him at this point. Look at number five. Joseph was wrongly accused of rape. That's his history. And let me read from Genesis 39. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. 
But he left his garment in her hand, and he fled, and he got out of the house. And as soon as he, she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out to the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he, is, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left the garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. A false accusation of a woman crying rape. And the result, another snapshot, look at verse er, number six. Joseph spends time in prison. He gets put in prison for that accusation. A and you pause and you go, what was going through Joseph's mind? Understand his age, he was probably just a little bit less than 30, about 28 years old at this point. And I can't help but think of his emptiness, missing his father. If you remember, his mother had died giving birth to his younger son, Benjamin. But wouldn't it have been fair for Joseph to throw out some questions? What is going wrong with me? Do I really deserve this? What's going on? What's wrong here? You catch the experiences of a young man before the age of 30 and what he's already gone through. But then we need to pause and just switch a direction here. When you think of the circumstances that people in this world and that we have to go through at times, and you think about our lives even here today, wouldn't it not be true that there's somebody in here that has come from a very broken family as well, just like Joseph. Now, we all come from broken families. No one's perfect. But this is true. Some families are more broken than others. Isn't that accurate? And so you think of the circumstances. Brothers who hate him. But here, among us, doesn't it also, the fact that we have people that have experienced rejection here? Yeah, maybe not sold into slavery, but there's been rejection from friends. Spouses have rejected spouses. Children have rejected parents. The likelihood of abuse and Pain in that way even, I think some sexual abuse that runs pretty rampant in our culture. And matter of fact, when you stop and you ponder all of the experiences that people go through, there's a, there's a reality around the holiday seasons where holiday seasons for many people are not a happy time. Fa frankly, brokenness and pain are multiplied. I, I just think of my brother who has gone through a divorce and all that some the kids are trying to decide where and who should they go to and what day, all of those things. See, the term holiday blues rings out loud and clear. And it's no wonder that anxiety medication sales go up at Christmas time and holiday times here. And for Thanksgiving and Christmas, yeah, it's happy for some people. But for many, it's actually a reminder as to what they don't have. Do you realize that? 
Uh, matter of fact, on, a, on Thanksgiving morning, I, I spent a couple hours with a nephew who is right in the middle of going through a divorce. And as we talked and we dug a little bit and the realization it's the first time the kids have to decide where they're going to different spouses and the first time where there's a sense of deep loneliness and discouragement of my marriage is done. Not having a family. You see, holidays reminded this young man of what he did not have. But Joseph could have said the same thing about his life. He was stripped from the experiences he should have had. And have you ever stopped and asked a question for Joseph when you read the story and go, do you think you ever asked, where's God in this picture? Because I think at times we can get to that place where we go through trials in life and you go, where is God? Where was the hardship and where was God when the hard things came for Joseph? Where is God for us when trials and discouragements come? But now here's where you need to read the rest of the story. Because when you look through, as you read those verses, what you're going to find is God was there with Joseph all along. God did not abandon this man. Grace found Joseph. And at 30 years of age, God brings him out of prison because he gives him the ability to interpret some dreams for Pharaoh. And he ends up taking him to a different place. But God was right there with Joseph in all of those snapshots of his life. And history tells us that Joseph was a man who understood that profoundly. Matter of fact, let me show you in the text where we see that he got it. Genesis 41. Look at this. Before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. He had taken a wife, but Asenath, the daughter of Patiphera, priest of On, bore them to him, and Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. God was with him. 52, and the name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land, and look at this phrase, of my affliction. You see, he was going through it. He knew it. And God was still there. Now, if you don't know the rest of the story again, you're going to have to read it. But the story moves like this after this was written in, verse, in chapter 41. A famine comes, and all of a sudden the sons and the father, Jacob, end up going to Egypt and are basically so they, they can have food and they, and they can eat. And, and Jacob and his boys... Joseph's brothers lived there for 17 years before Jacob died. So they were there a long time. But let me show you the main point of this story. Because I think at times we miss it. 
You know, we, we think about the character of Joseph and all of the, the, the temptations of running and all of those things, but th- there's really a main point to this whole story. In Genesis 45, verse 4, look how it goes. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me. This is the, the engagement as they come um, are coming into Egypt. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. So he's meeting them. This is for the first time. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And verse 7, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He, meaning God, has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and the ruler over the land of Egypt. I want to jump forward to another passage that really lasers as well, that combines with this text. And this one actually jumps 17 years later. This is at the death of Jacob, when Jacob, uh, when Jacob died, Joseph's father. But understand just the note here. These brothers are still concerned about Joseph has power, authority, could have them killed, and they still don't trust their brother. So this is where we pick it up in 50. When Joseph's brother saw that their father was dead, and they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. You know what? I think he was, they were lying. Okay, This really didn't happen. I don't believe this. But say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers in their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. You know, it's interesting. Next phrase, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Just to pause there a moment. If the brothers would have come and said, would you forgive me? But they didn't. I think Joseph wept because he goes, my brothers don't get it. They don't understand who God is. They don't get it. And look in 18. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, they're scared of him. Behold, we are your servants. But here's the character and where Joseph's at. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? He's saying, I don't have a right to kill you. I'm not God. But look at verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That is the main point of the whole story. 
And because I had to print my notes off before I left on Thanksgiving here, I need to add, if you want to fill this in or add this, maybe this might be helpful. Here's the key. God used this family to continue to fulfill his plan of redemption for this world. God had to step in and he had to save the line of Abraham. He had promised Abraham that he was going to fulfill and make him great in many nations and there would be a Messiah that would come. See, God was at work. See, the main point of this is not about the temptation. It's not even about Joseph's character. It is about God working. And the main point here, God is at work. Now, when you say, how do you, okay, then the question, how do you weld this with this issue of hope? And let me give you, in one sense, it's the application, it's the the theocentric, the God-centered application to this story. And for your bulletins, I, I said it this way, we have hope because God can use evil and ugly and pain for good. That's our application. He takes that which is ugly And he can use it. But I think the second part of that was God does not forget us. When times are hard, he didn't forget Joseph. But look at verse 20 again. Chapter 50. As for you, you meant evil against me. Do you catch where Joseph gets something? He understands something here that is really quite profound. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What's going on here? It's this. Evil and the goodness of God are getting meshed together in some form. That's what's taking place. And when that question, when people ask, why is there evil in this world? Folks, God is working. Matter of fact, there is a sister verse to this Genesis 50, verse 20. And let me put it on the screen. You know this verse. I think this is really the the sister verse for it. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who were called according to his purpose. And if Joseph would have read that, he would have said, Amen, Amen, Amen. But when we look at that, we have to be honest and admit that those words and connecting evil and good, and you go, how do you do that? And we're not so sure that we can actually even believe that to be true at times. That Romans 8 text, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. And you go, Paul, how can you promise that to us? And what we think is, is this really true? Can we really believe that? And then we struggle with this little word in here, and that word is all. All things. But you know what, where we want to go? Some things work together for good. Isn't that the easier way out? Some things. And matter of fact, I think we can even acknowledge that there's things that happen in our lives that where we learn great lessons of faith. 
And we can understand that. We go, yeah. And there's some things that clearly work together for good that we can comprehend. But all? All things? And you go, what do you do with all? Maybe these words are just theory. Maybe that's how we get around it. Or they're just a statement of faith. But here's the problem. They're the words from God. And they're true. But we struggle when things come. And at times we hear someone quote Romans 8.28, and instead of comfort, it's almost like a cruel joke. For my nephew, that's been used, and it didn't help him. The words hurt. And you go, what do you mean good? Because you think of the experiences that we experience. You know what? Sickness isn't good. Murder is not good. Divorce is not good. Suicide is not good. The death of a child is not good. And here's the challenge. These verses are often misused by by well-meaning people. And we kind of throw them out flippantly to those that are suffering as as if somehow it's going to answer the questions that they have. And when it's misused like, like that, I think it's actually doing the opposite of what Paul intends. And so we develop these quick responses to the hard things in life. And we come up with phrases like this. No matter what happens, God will turn a tragedy into a blessing. And you go, really? That's how people think, and that's not encouragement. Or we'll say this, that's not a tragedy. It only looks that way. Just have enough faith. That's what people teach. I came across an illustration that I think fits. And suppose I I have an accident, I just demolish my car, I wreck my car, and and I take it into a body shop, and the man says this, friend, you didn't have an accident, your car was just rearranged. It's not that bad. And, And you look at the crumpled bumper, and the windshield shattered, the fenders are gone, and you go, you don't get it. The, the car is gone. See, but when people are in pain, it's hard to see how evil and God's goodness come together. Which really brings us back to the question, can we believe this, that God is bringing that which is evil and that which is good and somehow creating some kind of recognition Conciliation where it is good. Let me show you something where I think we need to go in our own lives, in our own character, and how it matters with this. And, and, and this isn't from me. It was reading, and I used to listen to a guy by the name of Dr. Vernon Grounds, and he was the president of Denver Seminary. And, and he pointed, I learned this from him, but I want to put up the King James Version and compare it once and show you something. King James Version says this, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. New American says this, we know that God causes all the things to work together for good to those who love God. 
Do you notice the difference here? And the difference is this. In the King James, God is at the end. In the New American, God is at the beginning of those things. And there's a profound difference between the two. Now, grammar, it's okay to do both that way, but it really is a matter of emphasis, and the New American Standard really gets it right. But let me put up a statement on the screen, kind of application for, uh, for us. We will never properly understand this verse, Romans 8, 28, as long as we put God at the end and not the beginning. And let me explain and kind of drill down on that statement so you get this. The goal in our lives, God wants us to be transformed. That word becoming on the wall that we have painted out there is about transformation. It's about coming to a place where we're walking day by day with, with God. 1 John 2, 12 through 14 gives a picture of, of children, young men, and fathers. It, it's faith development. And let me tell you the difference. For a father when tragedy comes, or a child in their faith, in our faith when a tragedy comes, are two different ways to respond. And for the father, here's what happens. When a tragedy comes, God is already there. God doesn't have to be invited in because he's already there. One's life is God-centered. It's theocentric, a term, or it's, it's not about me, it's about God. But for the young, one who's young in their faith, what ends up happening is that that is the point when they want to invite God into the tragedy. God has to, we have to get to that place where we're with God first, he's in the situation first, rather than just invite him into the tragedy and say, oh God, would you fix it and make it better now and go away? That's the tension that we live. And the call in our lives is to get to that place where we have this rich relationship with God, where he's there when it happens. And for Joseph, you understand what happened. Folks, he wasn't even 30 here. And he was at this place where God was there at the beginning. That was already going on in Joseph's life. It wasn't bad luck. It wasn't blind fate. God was there when it happened, before it happened, during the middle of it, and when it was all over. God was there. And for us, if we're going to understand Romans 8.28, that's where we got to move toward, is where that God is active and he's a part of it all the time. And, and let me put a statement on the screen for you. We must see the active involvement of God in all things. He is always there. And if you're a child of God, your heavenly Father desires to be working in your life in everything. But let me point out and connect it then to the bad things that happen. Because when you look at Romans 8, 28, is Paul saying that whatever happens, I'll put them on the screen here, whatever happens is good? No. Is he saying that, a child dying is good? You go, no. 
Is he saying that suffering and evil and tragedy are good? No. Is he saying everything will work out if you just have enough faith? No. That's not the promise there at all. Is he saying that we will understand why God allowed tragedy to come? No. That's the challenge. What is he saying? Let me put a statement on the screen. God is putting up a sign over some of those mysteries that we will not understand fully. And the sign that says, trust and have hope, God is at work. That's the reality. And we're not always sure why. But the conclusion that we can come to when we begin to walk with God where He is there, the conclusion will be that God is still good, that God doesn't create this evil, He doesn't cause people to sin, He didn't cause the, the, the brothers to throw Him into the pit. He wasn't manipulating them like that. God is good and He's loving and He cares for us and He wants to be with us when those tragedies come. And God is working for purposes and those things that at times we won't even understand. And we have to be okay with that. So, see, that's what... 828 is saying. That's what Genesis 50. But let me give you an application point for your notes. Hope. You want hope? It's about putting God at the beginning and not waiting till the end. And you will have hope. See, it starts with God. It begins with our walk and our relationship with God where tragedy comes. He's there. I, as I was studying yesterday a little more, and I couldn't help but think of Gwen Geisler's mom who passed away here a week or two ago. And she has the stroke, has the heart thing going on. And God was with her before that point and she gets into the hospital and she begins to witness to the doctors. Why? Because God was there with her. Did you catch that? It was there at the end. All along. That's the kind of God that we have to pursue. And he wants to be with us. He wants to be there with us when hard things come. Folks, in this world, we all die. We're dealing with my Deanna's mom. She's been in the hospital a number of times, and we can see her struggling, and she's 86, 87, and, and we know that there's an end coming. But God needs to be there with her. Now, there's one qualifier i got to throw out here to remind you of. Romans 8, 28, when it says, All things work together for good. There's a qualifier for those that love him. If one doesn't have a relationship with Christ, that verse doesn't apply. And there's a sadness of which I say that, but that is the reality. And if you don't know Christ, I would implore you to seek him 
figure out what it means to know him, call me up. I'd love to visit with you. But for us that know Christ, we're going to do something different for Advent this year. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to light a flame. And what it represents is that this candle is representing God is working. And at times, we don't even look around to go, how is he working? Do you realize that? Sometimes we need to slow our lives down and go, okay, God, I need to just look for you. I think Joseph did that. I think he pondered and go, where is God in this? And that conclusion that he comes to, you know what? You guys meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Now, now just take 10 seconds here. And think back this last week. And can you pick out one thing where you go, God was at work and I saw it. I'm going to just, 10 seconds, I'm going to look at my watch and give you 10 seconds to, to do it. God is here, and he wants to meet us. As I was pondering that question here even yesterday, and I thought of my nephew that I was meeting with, and again, the, the, the lawyers, and the, it's just ugly. It, it was, I was really sad I came coming away from it. And yet, as I pondered it here yesterday afternoon, I said I had to come and say this. God is still there in the midst of it. And he's taking that young man, and I think for the, and, and he knows this, for the very first time, there's, there's something happening in his life where he's going, I think that I got to parent my boys, have three boys, I got to do it differently. And God is teaching him to not just be friends with his boys, he's teaching them how to disciple his sons who are going through the midst of this tragedy. And God is changing him. And is it still a tragedy? Is it still sinful? Is there all kinds of stuff going on? Yes, but God is with him, and I see it. And it left me encouraged, but God is in control. And because this young man is growing in his love for him, one day he'll understand more fully what this verse, Romans 8.28, and how God takes evil and turns it into good. He might know more down the line. But at this point, it's just a tragedy for him. And you go, that's okay. But see, God wants to be with us. And I would encourage you, go through this week, look where God is working. Begin, if you don't pursue a love relationship with him, you are going to wait until and bring him in at the end because tragedy is going to come. Parents die, siblings die, stuff happens. But the place where we need to go is to be that God, we sense God's presence and his working all the time. And that's where it starts. Let's stand and pray.